Hello and welcome to Immuno Tea, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunot. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, let's get started and move on to our guests for the day. We've got a great show for you. We're going to chat to Professor Emma Morris from University College London Hospital. Emma trained in clinical medicine at the University of Cambridge before specialising in haematology, oncology and allogeneic bone marrow transplantation. She's currently a transplant consultant at University College London Hospital and the Royal Freen London NHS. Emma's work is incredibly exciting. She and her research team focus on cell and gene therapy, as well as T-cell immunology and allogeneic stem cell transplantation for hematological malignancies and inborn errors of immunity. Emma, you are very welcome to the show. Thank you. Emma, this is a niche and very, very exciting field. How did you get interested in this originally? So... I trained as a haematologist and was really excited about allogeneic stem cell transplantation because it can basically cure people from leukemias and lymphomas. And during my clinical training or my postgraduate training, I wanted to do a PhD. I wanted to do some basic science research. And I went to Cambridge University and did a PhD that focused on stem cell biology, really. And when I came back into clinical medicine after my PhD, I threw myself into stem cell transplantation and actually became really interested in immunology because stem cell transplants work. They cure leukemia, they cure lymphoma because of the immune response of the donor-derived T cells and NK cells that eradicate the residual malignant cells in the patient. So I ended up getting a five-year senior fellowship to study T-cell immunology and T-cell engineering. And that really, I guess, I came round into immunology from haematology. And because my lab was doing basic T-cell immunology, I started being contacted by immunologists to say, how about um, coming to see some of our immunology patients that we might want to think about transplanting and that was very rare didn't happen very often and I then started seeing patients who were transitioning from pediatric care who'd been transplanted as children for severe inborn errors of immunity either in infancy or early childhood and of course when they get to 16 or 18 depending where you live and where you work they need to transition to adult care so I the sort of automatic transfer from Great Ormond Street in London was to my sort of transplant practice. And I started seeing these patients. But more and more people were approaching me about teenagers or younger adults who hadn't been transplanted earlier on in their life for various reasons. And so it just kind of all happened a bit by accident. And I now run a research group that's 
primarily focused on developing gene therapy and gene editing and cell therapy techniques for the correction of inborn errors of immunity. And I jointly run my research group with a colleague, Professor Siobhan Burns, who's really interested in understanding the molecular and cellular pathology and pathogenesis of inborn errors of immunity. So we work together to try and identify the mechanism involved in diseases when a new gene mutation has been identified and and how it causes disease. And then my side of the coin is to look at how we can correct those mutations, either by stem cell transplant or gene therapy approaches. So it wasn't something that I woke up one day and thought, I need to do this. But it's happened, I guess, very organically over time. And I am surprised by how deeply passionate I am about it. And I think as someone in my mid-50s, I feel like I've been given this whole new sort of specialty to work on rather than just doing the same old, same old and transplanting people for leukaemia for the next 20 years before I retire. So it's been uh, fabulous. And I think just because it's rare disease, if you develop an interest in that and you see quite a few patients, you end up getting a a disproportionate amount of expertise and the key then is to share it widely and communicate it widely because often physicians around the world will only have one or two of these patients and knowing how to manage them is quite difficult. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about stem cell transplantation first of all. Why do we use stem cell transplants in patients with inborn errors of immunity which were formerly known as primary immunodeficiencies? So patients who have inherited a genetic mistake from one of their parents or it's occurred during their fetal development, a de novo mutation. These patients can have mutations in a wide variety of different genes that are really important in the function of various different immune cells. And to date, there's about 480 different genetic mutations that have been identified that cause the primary immune deficiencies. And a number of mutations cause a very similar clinical disease, and some of them cause very different diseases. And the immune system is so important in protecting us from infection. It's important in protecting us from malignancies. So our immune cells are able to recognize pathogens um, that cause infection. They're also able to recognize abnormal cells, for example, malignant cells, and kill those. And also the immune system, we know if it's not working properly, or if it's dysregulated, it can cause unwanted tissue damage and inflammation, or it can cause autoimmunity. So the patients who have these primary immune deficiencies, otherwise known as inborn errors of immunity, can present with all sorts of different clinical problems from very severe life-threatening infections in early infancy through to severe refractory recurrence, multi-system autoimmunity, through to very early onset inflammatory bowel disease, severe infections and an increased risk of developing malignancy early on in life or recurrent different types of cancers. And The reason that stem cell transplantation can be a potential cure is because the genetic mutation that's affecting the immune system occurs in a cell that is derived from a hematopoietic stem cell. And 
it allows the possibility to use chemotherapy to kill off all the hematopoietic stem cells, which include the cells that carry the genetic mistake. You can kill them off and you can replace them with healthy stem cells from a donor. And that process is effectively an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And it requires you to give the patient a course of chemotherapy that we call conditioning therapy, which kills off the stem cells in their bone marrow and then replace them by infusing a collection of stem cells that you've isolated from either a family member or an unrelated donor who is appropriately matched to the donor. And then you wait for those stem cells to find their way into the bone marrow space, start dividing and what we call differentiating into mature cells of the hematopoietic system, but also the immune system. And you can effectively replace someone's entire innate and adaptive immune system with those of a donor. And of course, if the donor is healthy and doesn't carry a genetic mutation, then uh, you can effectively correct the function of the cellular immune response. What's amazing is that initially outcomes were poor in adolescents and adults undergoing stem cell transplantation for the inborn heirs of immunity. But can you comment a bit on the recent advances that have made this maybe a more suitable option for these older patients? Yeah, so I guess that's the real nub of the question. So historically, and when I say historically, it's not that long ago, sort of 20 years ago, patients with immune deficiencies who were being transplanted were basically babies with severe combined immune deficiency, babies with SCID, or babies with severe combined immune deficiencies, examples, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, CGD, um, CD40 ligand syndrome, various rarer immune deficiencies that affect both the humoral side of the immune response and the T-cell mediated immune response, because those patients tend to get the biggest clinical problems. And There are a number of things that have all evolved simultaneously. So outcomes from transplant in very young children have generally been exceptionally good, except 20 years ago, children who didn't have a fully matched sibling donor had much worse outcomes. So if they had to have an unrelated donor as the source of the stem cells, where uh, there's a bit of immune disparity between the recipient and the donor, which increases the risk of immune-mediated complications, ironically, when you're trying to treat an immune disease, such as graft-versus-host disease or immune-mediated graft rejection, the outcome was much poorer for those children. And so kids were treated with transplant if they had an excellent match, and typically that was a sibling donor, And of course, in a family that has an inherited disease, you might have a fully matched sibling, but they might be a carrier or they might also be affected. So they're not necessarily an appropriate donor. So inborn errors of immunity or inherited disease is a much reduced chance that you'll have a related person that's an appropriate donor for you just because of the underlying disease. So you had a situation where a bunch of kids could be treated with transplant and do exceptionally well if they were lucky enough to have a healthy, fully matched sibling donor. But then there were children who, if they had an unrelated donor transplant, maybe they had a 50 to 70% chance of survival, which of course, if you're a parent of a small child, actually, if you're 
a partner or a parent of anyone, facing a medical intervention that carries with it a very significant risk of you dying of a complication of that procedure. And we're talking of risks of 20, 30% chance of dying of a complication of the transplant when your child you know isn't very well and probably isn't going to get better, but you think actually they might have 10, 15, 20 years of reasonable quality of life. Taking that risk on behalf of someone else is a very difficult thing to do. And so I think outside of the context of sibling transplants, unrelated transplants, which had higher risks and higher complication rates, people were very conservative about about making those decisions. And some people would go for it if the severity of the complications of the disease were high. People had had recurrent intensive care admissions for severe life-threatening infections or they developed a malignancy or a lymphoma in childhood, which carried a significant risk of poor outcome in the future. But otherwise, people tended not to transplant. And so as time passed on, supportive care, so how we look after people conservatively got better. So our immunosuppressive regimens got better for people with inflammatory complications. Our antimicrobial prophylaxis got better. Our blood product supports, the use of biologics, for example, for um, severe inflammatory bowel disease, complicating things like CGD or ZIAP deficiency, for example, improved dramatically. So the conservative treatment improved so much that people's quality of life during childhood and adolescence improved. So it kind of always kept the transplant decision a bit in abeyance. But actually, what happens once you get to early adulthood, even if you've been well treated, you're beginning to accrue end organ complications, you start getting scarring in your lungs, bronchiectasis because of recurrent Uh, respiratory tract infections, you can develop complications or hypertension, diabetes if you've been on long-term steroids. And patients with immune dysregulatory disorders actually end up having multiple organ-specific autoimmunity that tends to be refractory to interventions. And some of the new drugs actually we don't know how long they're going to last. You know, you start treating someone with targeted therapy and it's effective but you don't know if it's going to be effective for five years or 10 years or 30 years so while conservative treatment got better and more children were surviving into adulthood so you could even ask the question in the background how we transplanted adults with leukemias and lymphomas uh, we got much better at doing it we started transplanting much older adults and we were able to transplant across HLA mismatch barriers and now we use haploidentical donors all the time. We use post-transplant cyclophosphamide to reduce the risk of graft versus host disease. So you can use significantly mismatch, HLA mismatched donors safely to transplant patients. So there's been a whole bunch of improvements in transplant practice. And there's been improvement in conservative management and better understanding of the diseases such that you can introduce targeted therapies. So we've ended up with a bunch of children surviving into adulthood who previously hadn't. But actually, they've still, if you're 20, and your expectation is that you live a normal life, you still have an immune system 
that doesn't work properly that's got to get you through the next 40 or 50 years without accruing more complications. So we now get more and more referrals for patients because people are beginning to understand the natural history of these diseases in adulthoods, whereas previously people didn't survive much into adulthood. So now we know, for example, if you have CGD, the chances of you having severe respiratory complications in your late 30s and 40s is extremely high, for example. Now, previously, people didn't survive that long. And of course, for you, well, for me, I'm in my mid-50s. That's very young, right? Being in your 30s is very young. If you're a parent of a 12-year-old, you can always kick the can down the road a bit because taking on a risk of a transplant is a difficult decision to make. So as you're saying, this is a high risk procedure, but also high reward. So patient choice must be quite complex. Can you comment on what makes the right patients and of course the wrong patients? What do you wish clinicians such as our listeners knew before referring people to you for consideration of stem cell transplant? And in general, should we be referring patients earlier? Yeah, that's a really fabulous question. Yes, yes, yes. Refer early. Talk about transplant all the time. So my recommendation would be, and I guess it's easy for me to say this because I'm a transplant physician, but I genuinely think it should just be part of the conversation. So, you know, when you talk to someone about their, often it takes many months or years to get a diagnosis, particularly people presenting in adolescence, Clearly, that's not the case if someone has a known family history and they're diagnosed very early after they're born or, you know, it's expected that there's a risk that the child will be, the baby will be affected. But for many patients, they're diagnosed later on in life. And I think having that conversation that we can treat you symptomatically, we can give you antibiotics if you have an infection we can give you antivirals if you have a viral infection if you have inflammatory complications we can give you immune suppressing drugs we can replace your immunoglobulin with immunoglobulin replacement therapy we can try and maintain as good a quality of life as possible for you we'll monitor your lung function test we'll monitor your liver function test for example we'll intervene when we think things are beginning to deteriorate. But all of that is just covering someone with sticking plasters. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but it doesn't actually alter. It alters the disease course. It alters the uh, rate of progression and the rate at which you accumulate complications as a result of your immune deficiency. But it doesn't make the problem go away. So the only potential curative option is stem cell transplantation, and in a few rare monogenic diseases, gene therapy. So I genuinely think having that conversation with people after they've had a diagnosis is, look, at some point we might want to consider whether having a transplant would be the right thing for you. It's quite a risky thing to do, but it's potentially therapeutic. It can get you off all of these medications and potentially stop you developing complications in the future and allow you to lead a normal life. And I think for many people, that is an extremely attractive option. And the major problem we have is that patients get referred to us too late. 
So they have developed complications such that their lung function test precludes a transplant being safe, or they've developed hepatic complications, which seem to disproportionately adversely affect outcome following transplant. So patients with common variable immunodeficiency, CVID, it's still a it's a very common form of adult immunodeficiency. There are a few monogenic causes described. It's a difficult disease to treat. Lots of patients actually are relatively well and do extremely well for the whole of their life on immunoglobulin replacement therapy, plus or minus antimicrobial prophylaxis. But there's a group subset of patients who do extremely badly, who have complex disease with severe autoimmune complications. And generally, their life expectancy would be in their 50s or less than that. And so the difficulties there, which kind of highlight some of the issues that are live in the field at the moment, are we don't have good biomarkers to predict who are the people who are going to do badly. And then if we can predict those people, then we can intervene early. We can. It's more appropriate to offer them a higher risk, potentially curative treatment if we know they're going to do badly. And many of these diseases are so rare that there's only three or four or 10 people in the world with it. It's really hard to make that decision. You, you say to a patient, well, actually, this is what I think might happen to you over the next 10 years. But actually, I don't know because there just aren't enough people alive with your conditions that I can tell you with any real certainty exactly what the pace of your disease is going to be and how badly you're going to be affected. And in addition, even with some very well characterized genetic causes of immune deficiency within a family, there's quite a lot of heterogeneity and sort of phenotypic variation. So you can have people with the same mutation, some with really severe disease and some with mild disease. So it's extremely difficult. And the way we manage that is just to be really, really open with the patients and to discuss the fact that there are lots of uncertainties, but there's a sense that the disease is progressing, that their quality of life is deteriorating, that these are the options, these are the risks, these are the things that can be improved, these are the things that can't be fixed. You know, there are some things, if you've already got severe bronchiectasis and scarring you can't make the scarring in the lungs go away but if you correct the immune system you can stop them getting recurrent infections in the future so you can prevent further damage for example so same sort of thing with inflammatory arthropathies or bowel disease you know if you've had lots of strictures for example they're not going to suddenly get better because you've had a transplant but you would anticipate you wouldn't get further insults so it's managing expectation about what's achievable and also being really honest about the uncertainties it's one of the reasons i love it but it's you spend most of your time when you're supposed to be an expert feeling like you don't really know what you're doing so it's quite a humbling experience that sounds so challenging there's just so many difficulties around it it's really fascinating to hear it um also I suppose reassuring for us as well to hear that sometimes maybe you're not entirely sure exactly what the decision should be we might change tack just a tiny bit because your research is so diverse maybe you could talk to us about your work in gene therapy so for instance what patients is it more appropriate for maybe than stem cell transplantation so most of the 
clinical gene therapy approaches used in patients at the moment use an approach whereby you take the patient's own stem cells, so autologous stem cell collection, and in a laboratory, they get genetically modified. And typically, we use disabled lentiviruses. So we use a virus to... We kind of hijack the normal function of a virus, which is to get inside a a cell and deliver its genetic payload. And normally a virus does that so it can replicate inside the host cell. And you can use a replication incompetent viral vector to deliver a target gene, which is typically a wild type copy of a gene that carries a loss of function mutation or has a aberrant stop codon. So where the either the protein of the protein product of that gene is not expressed in the cell or the protein product is not functional. And you can therefore introduce a new copy of the gene and this can be constitutively activated in the cell that's been successfully transduced by the virus. And those stem cells can be infused or transplanted back into the patient And you need to give the patient chemotherapy again to get rid of their stem cells that carry the mutation and you replace them with their own corrected stem cells. Now, the advantage of this is that there's no immunological disparity. So there's no risk of graft rejection. There's no allo reaction. There's no donor-derived T-cell or NK responses because the stem cells come from the patient. And so you don't have a risk of graft versus host disease. You don't have to immunosuppress a patient and you don't have to put them on GVHD prophylaxis, which is typically one or two quite potent immunosuppressive drugs. And of course, that's helpful if people have got infection at the time that they're being treated. Many people, you can't get them infection free when you take them to transplant or take them to gene therapy. So it reduces the risks of immunological sequelae, it reduces the risk of of infection. So it's safer, it's definitely, definitely massively safer. The challenges are the durability of the response and whether you can transduce a high enough proportion of the stem cells, correct them so they express the wild type gene and that the cells that derive from those stem cells function normally and whether that Uh, expression of the transgene is stable over many years such that you continuously make a proportion of cells derived from your transduced stem cells that function normally, that have been functionally corrected. And for many of the gene therapy approaches, actually, there's evidence that there is good durable transgene expression. So for XGID, ADA-SGID, Wisco-Aldridge and CGD, but not necessarily in all cell lineages. So we're now at the stage where I have a whole group of patients who are between the ages of about 17 and 20, 21, who were at the vanguard of gene therapy, who I now look after. And some of them are genuinely cured and some of them have a number of issues because not every lineage has been corrected, for example. And some of them have problems, for example, haven't reconstituted 
B cells or their myeloid compartment is not perfect because at the time conditioning wasn't used and how we do gene therapy has changed over time. So part of what I do is dealing with the way things um, the paediatricians did 20 years ago and they've got better also at what they're doing. So how they do gene therapy now is different to when they did the very first phase one studies. So I tease my paediatric colleagues a lot about inborn errors are for life, not just for paediatrics, because, you know, that these patients are going to need to be looked after throughout their life, because actually, unless you get 100% correction in all cell lineages, you end up effectively with a chimeric patient who still has a, could have an immune dysregulatory disorder. Some of their cells won't function normally. Now, it may be that that's enough. We know that to correct X-linked CGD, you actually, you don't need that many phagocytes working normally for that to get a functional clinical correction for the patient to be well. So those sort of what I call standard gene therapy approaches are pretty effective. The advantages of treating older patients with gene therapy is that if they have worse comorbidities, that makes you really worry about the risk of allograft. Actually, it's potentially safer because you don't have this period of prolonged immune suppression where they can run into serious infection problems. The conditioning therapy is not quite as intensive, um, so it's better tolerated. The political difficulties are around the cost and accessibility. And of course, if I ring up one of my colleagues running a gene therapy trial and say, I've got a 80 kilogram patient that I want to treat with gene therapy, the amount of vector you use to transduce the stem cells is dependent on the number of stem cells you need to transfer into the patient, which is dependent on the size of the patient. So they're saying, well, we could treat one adult or we could treat five babies. And these are difficult. They're uncomfortable conversations to have. And there's a lot of issues at the moment around access for gene therapy because big pharma are finding reimbursement issues difficult. So that's a whole different podcast, and I won't get into that today. And then one final thing I think about gene therapy that is where where we're going at the moment is that the approaches I've just described there really only work for loss of function mutations or mutations that result in an absent gene or a truncated gene. And for many... Uh, immunodeficiencies, there's significant gain of function mutations. And you can't correct that by putting in an extra copy of a healthy gene because you've still got your gain of function mutation. So actually what you then need to do is use gene editing approaches to correct that mutation in situ in the cell. And so some of the work in my lab at the moment is developing gene editing for, for example, STAT1 gain-of-function mutations for APDS for CTLA4 haploinsufficiency. And to see whether some of these diseases you can correct in mouse models using a stem cell targeted approach or whether in fact there are some diseases that are predominantly t-cell mediated whether you could actually do a sort of gene therapy gene editing approach just correcting the t-cell compartment so there's a huge amount of work that's just beginning to happen and is moving quite rapidly towards early phase trials in patients 
And the, the gene editing approaches, for example, in sickle cell disease and thalassemia have been spectacularly successful. So we know that these approaches can work. So it's quite an exciting time. It is such an exciting time. This is a captivating and uh, very rapidly expanding field. And I think you've answered a lot of this already. But can you briefly tell us what's the most exciting thing coming down the line from you? What should we be watching out for in the next few years? I definitely think gene editing and the use of gene edited T cells and stem cells for patients with inborn errors of immunity. And it may be that T cell therapies will be used as a bridge to transplant. So for example, if people have got refractory autoimmunity to correct that by correcting the Treg compartment genetically and infusing those to get control of disease, to reduce comorbidity, to get patients into a remission, for example, before a transplant, I think Transplant will continue to grow in adults. We've published quite a bit this year in collaboration with other colleagues across Europe, and the field is growing rapidly. And we need more transplant physicians who are typically haematologists. To We need to educate them a bit more into complex immunology. And we need more integrated services. I'm really lucky where I work because we have the we've set up joint clinics where we see patients together. A a primary immunodeficiency physician and a transplanter will see the patient together. And that is a very valuable experience for the patient and their families, but also for us because you have someone who understands the disease, its natural history, the complications, and you have someone who understands all the risks around the transplant and what's possible and what isn't possible. And I think it's really hard to deliver though, make these difficult decisions without that combined expertise. So I think seeing more centers developing this clinical service is really exciting. We've established a big MDT where we discuss patients and it used to be a UK-based thing and now it's become very international and we've discussed nearly 250 patients who have all been considered for transplants around the world and it's a really fabulous way to learn just to listen to all these difficult conversations and understand that Not everybody has all the right answers all the time, but to be able to learn from our experience and keep publishing outcomes, even if the series are quite small, because it's the only data we've got in these rare diseases. So I'm excited about gene editing and cellular therapy approaches. I'm excited about continuing to grow and expand aloe transplant in adults, and I'm excited I think about targeted therapies. So these are coming online, the more we understand the pathogenesis of these diseases. And the biggest challenge for everyone is every time you get a genetic variant identified in one of your patients, the amount of work required to determine whether that's pathogenic and the cause of their disease. And basically you need for every variant identified, you need a whole team of people doing all the preclinical lab work before you can really say, yes, that's the cause of your disease. So it's very personalised and individual and labour intensive. But like you said, it's all very exciting. 
So, Professor Emma Morris from University College London, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. It's been great. Lara, that was just incredible. I am so in awe of her. I might have just been convinced to subspecialize in transplant immunology. It's great that curative therapies for inborn errors of immunity are within reach now. That is honestly so exciting. Emma is amazing. I think for me, one of the most important things I took from our chat there with Emma is that we need to start thinking about referring our patients earlier. So before they have the complications that might prevent the transplant. But then I suppose, as she says, that's complex in itself to know the right people, to know the right patients. And we need better predictive biomarkers of of who will have these worse outcomes down the line. Look, I guess that that brings the episode to an end. Yep, it's been amazing to learn so much today, not only about what we already know about immunology, but also where the field is potentially going. And there's just enough time to find out if you have got another good tea fact or terrible joke for me today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our producer said that I can't do a haiku, though maybe if listeners (laughs) contacted us to say that they would enjoy an immunology haiku, that could change. But in the meantime, (laughs) I have another joke, a tea joke. Oh, God. Okay. Wow. Let's hear it. A patient says, doctor, I have pain in my eye whenever I drink tea. The doctor says, well, take the spoon out of your mug. Oh, God. Oh, I suppose that's a quality joke if ever I heard one. (laughs) Oh, I see. I've met my matcha. Oh, no, Bianca. Okay, that's enough from us for today. If you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, or if you do want one of Bianca's terrible haikus, please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that. That's T-E-A. We're really looking forward to our next episode where we'll be chatting to Dr. Angus Lavelle from University College Cork all about the gut microbiome. We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Emma Morris, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and to our editor, Aidan McKelvey. Thanks so much to you for listening and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now. <laughs>